I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm super excited to welcome Michelle T to talk about knocking myself up. I had a look before at when Against Memoir came out when you were last here reading. I thought I'd better remind myself because it was God, it was like a decade ago, it was years ago, 100 years ago, I looked it up, 2019. <laughs> September 2019, yeah. but it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, anyway, I'm glad you had such a good time last time that you wanted to come back. I want to see I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, Michelle's going to be in conversation with Isabel Vaina, who was here in July. Yeah. Reading for the Orwell Prize yeah. shortlist. I um, feel very lucky that these guys keep wanting to come back. Um, yeah, we're made up. Thank you. Welcome our guests. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. The best bookshop in town. There's lots of other great ones as well, but this is a favourite. <laughs> Um, thanks, guys, for coming. I just really briefly want to say I'm going to keep the mask on um, during the talk because um, my partner is vulnerable to COVID, so I hope that's okay with you guys. Mm -hmm. Thanks for understanding. Of but course. I'm so delighted to be talking with you about your amazing book. Thank you. Um, do you want to start by yeah, reading something? Yeah, I'll read a piece of it. Um, let me see. I'm going to read this part from the, from the back. Um, uh, let me see. Where is it? Where is it? Here it is. Um, so the book is about sort of my decision at 40 to see, you know, what would happen if I tried to have a baby. And at the start, no partner, no health insurance. Um, so I'm reading from the end. Spoiler alert. I have a baby. <laughs> Hopefully you still want to read the book. So much happens between those two things. Um, so this is towards the end of it um, where I'm like at the, I'm past my due date, Okay. The Groundhog Day-esque nature of my recent days, a gentle cramping in my uterus, the trek to the hospital, the gloved finger insulting my cervix, the same old sonogram, hits a deja vu peak the following morning as I lie on a bed in my buttless Johnny, an IV port jammed into the crook of my arm, listening as a nurse explains that the delivery rooms are again packed with emergency C-sections. Could I please go back home and try again tomorrow? The irony, if that's what it is, of dodging the delivery room for weeks, the staff practically begging to slice the baby out of me, only to finally capitulate and then be sent home, and then sent home again, well, didn't exactly register on me, bleary as I was from a night of no sleep and a morning of no coffee. The astrological clock was ticking. Was it his destiny, this child, to be born on the first day of Scorpio during a planetary avalanche of intense sex and death energy? It wasn't just one planet. It was like so many planets moving into Scorpio. I was just trying to get him out of me before that happened. It's just too much for anybody, too, too big a burden. Um, so my first act of parenting. The nurse finally agrees that if I was fine with waiting in that hospital room for, oh, like eight more hours, they could probably get to me around dinner time. I curl up on the starchy white hospital bedding and trying not to bump the IV port sticking grotesquely from my arm, wrap my arms around my belly and take a nap. At dinner time, I am brought into the operating room alone for my spinal. It is jabbed into my body by a student, even though I had pleaded in my birth plan to please, please, please not have students doing things like sticking needles into my spine. But whatever, it's not a birth plan, it's a birth intention. <laughs> Morphine starts flowing into my IV port, which I notice by becoming suddenly really fucking high. It feels amazing. 
I knew that there would be a sheet of sorts draped across me, protecting me from the grisly sights of my insides being cut open, something one should never have to see. But I always imagined it as a delicate little block of white, like an elegant clothesline hung above my waistline. In fact, it is more like a giant blue tarp, and it is about an inch from my face. My body is tilted at an incline, and my arms are stretched out like Christ on the cross. They had honored my birth intention of not strapping them down. The doctor made little cuts into my skin and asked if I could feel them. And not only could I not feel them, I didn't even fucking care because morphine is so wonderful. <laughs> Everything feels both very close and very far, an effect of the drug. I am pondering this when the sudden cry of an actual baby fills the room. Oh my god, I say, go to him, go to the baby, go. They kiss me and are gone. I float in a woozy state of awe, knowing there is a baby here now, that it has been inside me and is mine. The faraway feeling keeps growing, like time and space are stretching out in front of me. Oh my god, there is my baby's face. His lips are so red, they are rubies, they are fairy tale lips. <laughs> say something to him, Orson says, holding the squinting newborn over me. What does one say to a baby? Hi, baby, I say. Hi, Atticus. Orson and the baby are whisked away to the nursery, and my shaman doula is brought in to be by my side. She goes into a slight trance to communicate with the baby and relays to me that his guardian animal spirit is a turtle and that he loves water and would always want to be near water to feel the current. Then she tells me she's seen a dragonfly. She is still being witchy. There are no insects in the operating room. Still, this is interesting. That's my grandfather, I say. My mother believes that her father shows his spirit to her in the form of dragonflies, which she spots constantly, hovering with their iridescent helicopter wings. The doula squeezes my shoulders. I am impressed with her psychic acumen. Her vision lent credence to my mother's faith, and now I believe my grandfather is present in the operating room in the form of an invisible dragonfly. I hope that he did not arrive from the land of the dead to take me back with him. That stretchy space-time feeling has not stopped. I continue to feel like I am being pulled farther away from where I am. I announce to whoever is listening that I'm about to throw up. A little blue sock of sorts with accordion folds is held under my mouth to catch the upchuck. I can barely twist my head to reach it and puke down my face. Who cares? I feel great. I had a baby. There is an intellectual sensation, a thought, I guess, that maybe I should be worried, what with the elasticity of space-time and the vomiting and all, but I can't muster up the corresponding emotion of worry, not while being surrounded by a team of medical professionals who are actually being paid cash money to worry about me while I bliss out on the best free laps of my life. I'm sober. <laughs> She isn't looking good, the shaman doula alerts my team. She's losing blood, I hear someone say. No big deal. I mean, I'm in an operating room surrounded by surgeons. If I'm going to lose a lot of blood, this is the place to do it. I'm soon rolled into my recovery room, the ceiling lights passing above my head in a glowing highway of sorts. It seems the problem with my body has been sorted, but alarm at my lost blood rises again. Another flock of people, doctors, nurses, students, gather around me fussing. An ultrasound machine is rolled in to see if any tissue was accidentally left inside me, I'm informed. It is cute that people are still speaking to me as if I am a whole and cognizant person and not just a gossamer thread blowing in the breeze. In the world, but not of it, like a Jehovah's Witness. I manage to ask my doula for my glasses, and she sets the frames gently on my nose. I can't feel the ultrasound wand sliding over my belly, what with the recent spinal injection. The glowing green pixels on the screen mean nothing. A doctor tells me my womb is clean, but if I don't stop bleeding, they're going to give me a transfusion. Was I okay with that? Totally. Did transfusions come with additional morphine, I wondered? Someone gives me a shot to stop the bleeding, and I notice I am wearing these giant anti-blood clot boots on my legs, and they are giving my calves what looks like a fabulous massage. Can I stay here forever? Even though I know I am possibly dying, I feel very great and can't take seriously the thought that I might die, what with my opiate-enhanced optimism. Orson walks into the room, our brand new baby all bundled in their arms. They look at me, at the urgent rush of doctors, and their face grows tight with alarm. A nurse grabs their arm and gently herds them out of the way. Somehow I roll my head to face them, lift my arm, and give them a big thumbs up and a toothy <laughs> smile. I need them to know that I know I am going to be fine, even though I also know I could maybe die. They don't really respond to my thumbs up, as they are too distracted by the sudden realization that I could maybe die, so I do it again and then maybe again until they acknowledge it with a small, scared smile. And obviously, I am right, and I totally don't die. Once my medical team approves my morphine-induced optimism and confirms that I am okay, 
the bleeding is stopped, the urgent hubbub around me falls quiet, and my doula rushes in with an urgency of her own. Put the baby on her, put the baby on her, she directs, clearly feeling that too much time has already elapsed between the baby's emergence into the world and the orienting skin-to-skin -skin contact so many believe to be crucial for mother-baby bonding. The baby's hot little body, undone from his bunting, is placed on my own sweaty chest, and I marvel at the animal I have become, have always been, as he moves instinctively to my nipple and begins to nurse. My body makes food. I love when the most natural things are also the most magical, the most incredible. Colostrum, the thick, nutrient-dense pre-milk, nicknamed liquid gold for its buttermilk hue and superfood powers, leeches from my areola like I am some kind of primordial mother goddess. There is yet another idea behind this deep animal contact I am enjoying with my baby, and that is epigenetics. I am fascinated by the newish science, the idea that trauma can be passed down through family lines, and therefore can also be healed, cycles broken through closeness and care. I think about the lineage of mental illness that has traveled down my matrilineal line, going back at least to my great-grandmother, who married an abusive husband, how she transferred that trauma onto my grandmother, who was forced to dash to the police station to save her mother's life how she was plagued with nightmares of her father and suffered a nervous breakdown when my own mother was only five. The trauma of that for my mom added to the fact that my grandmother was a rather cruel parent, being freaked out all the time as she was, no coping skills and whatnot. And how later my mother was coached by the science of the time not to breastfeed us, me and my sister. My poor sister starved for early maternal contact for days after her birth, as my mother had come down with a cold and the hospital feared her sickening her offspring. It is also so much to consider, the early effects of parental bonding. If you think about it, and I did think about it mightily during those profound early days of motherhood, most everyone gets off to a rather traumatic start, birth itself being a trauma perhaps, and then everything that may or may not follow it, the home you are taken back to, mine thick with cigarette smoke, and my angsty alcoholic dad, so wounded that his dad was petty and resentful enough to refuse to come and see me, his granddaughter, that my father took a knife and stabbed it through a box of pasta that had been sitting on the table, triggering my grandmother, who was there, filling the house with cigarette smoke, as they all were, and how my grandmother had to leave then, disturbed by my father's drama with the knife, and who can blame her? And there I am in the midst of it, a tiny baby soaking in the vibes, various genes being turned on or lying dormant according to the care I need and if I receive it or not. And I did get my ancestral anxiety, not to mention my father's alcoholism. And I imagined myself as a tiny switchboard being lit up by these hapless grown-ups who'd been at the mercy of their own errant switchboards for far too long. I hadn't consciously had my baby as a way to release ancestral trauma, but in my postpartum state, which even without the painkillers is a deeply psychedelic one, it seems that birthing a baby and working with it to heal epigenetic trauma, placing a consciously birthed and nurtured human onto the planet, can possibly be a radically helpful act. Amazing. I love that particular section as well. It's, it, it's um, one of the things that I noticed, it, it, I noticed reading it was you, re you respond incredibly well to drugs. <laughs> I respond well to drugs. Yeah. I do. You do? I do. Because um, this is not the kind of morphine experience that everybody would have. Some people sort of are really unwell on it. And so, all this. And so you really have a, a knack for it. <laughs> Thank you. I knew that I had a knack for drugs, and I did try to make it my career. Yeah. And it worked for a little while, and then I had yeah. to quit. Yeah. And I like that you call it free love thing. That's yeah. Like, cheeky. <laughs> totally. Um, so um, I'm going to ask um, Michelle a few questions. We chat a little bit, and then I'm going to open it up to you guys so you can think of questions to ask as well um, for, for towards the end of the talk. But um, my first question was going to be um, the title, Knocking Myself Up. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really interesting because it sort of is almost like a juxtaposition, or it creates a little bit of a tension between this idea that um, Conception is a hugely social project, so mm -hmm. you didn't actually knock yourself up. You like you, you say at some point it took a whole village to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I wonder whether you could um, say a little bit more about this sort of idea of getting pregnant as a social project mm -hmm. that you sort of really threw yourself into with complete excitement <laughs> in a way. Yeah. You know, and, um, determination and you sort of recruited your entire environment into it as well yeah so um, that's something I loved about the book and I think it sits sort of um, weirdly it sits a little bit um, in just it sits interestingly 
next to more kind of arguably conservative notions of privacy. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea that the conception is an extremely um, like private act. You do the exact opposite. <laughs> and, then, and then you write a book about it. So it's like a super social and public act. Yeah. Um, do you want to say a bit more about yeah, the sociality? Yeah, sure. Oh, I love all of that. Oh. Um, well, yeah, I knew that the book was very cheeky. Thing. It was a very cheeky title, right? Because even, even if... I don't know, like nobody knocks themselves up, right? Like, I mean, I definitely <laughs> didn't, but sort of arguably nobody does. So it was meant to be like tongue in cheek and just sort of grab you. Right. And I, I remember just like throwing it out there in a brainstorm with my agent and she really liked it immediately. And I was like, I kind of think I do too. It's like, it's sort of, you know, because it's so cheeky, it sort of um, gives you a sense that that's how the book is, right? Yeah, it's not a very like, it's not super precious. It's not super serious. It's somewhere, there's some humor in it. Um, it's not gonna take itself too seriously. But um, yeah, I mean, especially I think for um, queer people, it, you can't really, <laughs> not, it's very hard. It's harder, right, for, uh, for us. I mean, it was like, you know, I, I, I'd stopped having sex with people who could get me pregnant quite a long time ago and had always been really grateful for that, that it, it was something I didn't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that flipped, you know, um, especially in the, in the time leading up to me really making the decision and taking the plunge. I was so tormented by this ambivalence. I just didn't know if I, I, wa I wanted to know, you know, either way, I just wanted to know, did I want to have a kid or didn't I? And I was like, fuck, I just wish someone would, I wish I could accidentally get pregnant. <laughs> and I'd, ke I'd keep yeah. it, because I'd be like, oh, here I am, you know? And, and so, and I mean, I know, you know, sorry to any of you who've ever been accidentally pregnant who want to kill me right now. You know, I know it's not fun, but I was just like, how, I know people who that's how they had their child, yeah, right? Sure. They did get, knocked up and they were like I, I guess I'm gonna keep it you know yeah, and, sure. and you know yeah. and they were happy about that um, so I started googling I was 40 I was like can I even have a you know I don't know anything about this stuff um, so I googled it and I found some very grim website that was like probably not girl you wasted your time <laughs> you know like you're you were partying and then your eggs went bad um, so and then I, and I got really sad and I cried I started crying I felt very emotional and I was like wow I think I do have a feeling underneath all this ambivalence so much of my ambivalence I think was survival fear I'm just somebody who's always had so much survival fear around money and being okay and being able to take care of myself and you know the reason I was even considering this beyond that it was the age to, if, you, if I ever was going to consider it, I had to. Um, I also, you know, like I wasn't in a relationship, which was actually quite good because my relationships tended to be very tumultuous. <laughs> I wouldn't want to, you know, I dated people who didn't really want kids or like, sh like I didn't want to have kids with them, you know? <laughs> so it was like, oh, um, this is peaceful, you know, mm -hmm. uh, environment to bring a child into. I have great friends. Um, and then I had some money. I, you know, I just, a lot of things had happened at once. I'd gotten, a book deal. Um, I, I was running a nonprofit that was doing really well. I'd gotten a grant. I was like, huh. So I just decided to take the leap. And I did have to involve my community right away. I had to find sperm. I hate paying for things that I can get for free. <laughs> so I was just like bumming sperm off of gay boys, um, having real awkward conversations with people, you know, that like I've known for years, but like it, in a like sort of nightlife way where you're like, hey, you know, and then I'm like, hey, would you give me sperm to have a baby? You know, and they're like, whoa, like, not prepared to have feelings, you know, and, and thoughts, so no. <laughs> um, but eventually I did get somebody to say yes to me. Um, who not to brag is the drag queen Little Miss Hot Mess, who you might know of, because <laughs> she's like, she's, you know, us being persecuted by the religious right in the United States for, you know, her involvement in Drag Queen Story yeah. Hour and her children's mm -hmm. books, she's the best. Um, so, and then a really good friend of mine I had come over my house and ferry the bowl of sperm between him and me. We were on other sides of my apartment. So yeah, community effort right away. It felt like a crafting project, yeah. you know? And then after, we'd all hang out on my bed and just like watch, you know, Marcel the Shell with shoes on and just like, I don't know, talk. It was really incredible. Exactly, it really comes across. It comes across as like you're doing something together. This yeah. is suddenly like a shared project. It really felt yeah. like that, you know? And then I got in a relationship and ruined it, you know? It's just like <laughs> totally ended up becoming a project of the partnership that I ended up finding myself in, which was really great, you know? And, and honestly, I would not, you know, I go on to find out that I wouldn't have gotten pregnant in the way we were doing it, in that fun, fun way, that I did need medical intervention if I was going to, so. 
Oh yeah. And everyone around you was also, was really generous about it, like including your then partner. Yeah. Like people were completely up for it, including the the, the sperm donor. Yeah. Like he was so great about there it. There was like people. There's like such a generosity of spirit in the book, really, mm -hmm. all the way through. And people weren't like you know if you sort of uh, even if you like I don't know if uh, if any of you have been sperm donor. I mean I haven't, but if there has been if um. <laughs> Wouldn't you also worry about ah oh, what 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 are going to be my obligations for the child later on? But your your friend was just so open. He was perfect. Yeah. yeah, I think that he's like I don't know. I think that he's like such a feminist queer that he's like, why would these capable people want a man involved? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like he was just sort of like you don't you don't need me. Yeah, you know, amazing. like he's but you know at the same time I was always like you're so welcome to do you know always be in this kid's life however you'd like you know however it shakes down and um, my kid knows about him and calls him well I call him Doni Doni Harris I'm like Doni look Doni Harris is on the news again you know and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> Doni Harris is being attacked by you know, Ted Cruz this week oh my god um, but it is really I mean just to talk about it astrologically for a moment he um, well, he was, he, he said yes before his 27th birthday, first of all, and your brain doesn't actually, like, stop developing till you're around 27, and you don't fully understand risk and consequence, right, maybe so maybe that, that was cool. I was yeah. like, don't worry about it. But he's also on the cusp of Aquarius and Capricorn, so he had this very Aquarian generosity, hum, mm. hu, you know, humanistic, mm. like, oh, I have something you don't, how could I not, you know, yeah. how can I deprive yeah. you? Community oriented, yeah. like I want to help, you know, my <laughs> queer community. So beautiful. And then as a Capricorn, the Capricorn element, just like, you need me to be there four days in a row, randomly, at, uh, like on a dime, yeah. like, because your little ovulation piece stick suddenly got a stripe, I'm there, you know? Yeah. And like, they would show up, they came straight from like an Occupy Wall Street protest with their sign, you know, they came, before many drag events, you know, in full drag. Um, they came very late one night after their birthday party, which had been this huge event at a roller, where they turned an art gallery into a roller rink and got like vodka sponsors for it. I mean, it was like a, a thing. I didn't go to it, but he came over afterwards and then like couldn't have an orgasm. It was like the one time. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm just like, you're insane. Just go home. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the, I didn't, Realize what I was asking of him. Honestly, at the beginning, I did it. Is, yeah, yeah, it comes across in a way. It comes across that the sort of the labor of, of, of so conceiving labor. was like was like actually intense, wasn't yes, it? It, was a, it really was. Yeah. It really was intense. Um, and you know, my friend Allie was like, "Did you buy him a bus pass or something? Like, what's he getting out of this?" And I was just like, "Oh, I was wanting to like give him little gifts and stuff." I mean, it's so incredible. Um, that, that he that he yeah. did that you know yeah, really and I have cool. this one story that you know when we did move from the at-home inseminations once realizing they weren't going to work and had to use artificial reproductive technology then he had to go and, and like make a deposit you know at the clinic so he was in the room it's like the jerk-off room right and they're like just you know enjoy yourself there's porn whatever there's no queer porn this is in San Francisco no queer porn. That's the most homophobic thing I think yeah, that we experienced. We experienced homophobia. We experienced queer phobia, but no queer porn in the jerk off room is very insulting. Um, so he he had to do it twice. So when he came back the second time, he brought his own computer and a blank and a blank DVD, and he made a DVD of a close up of himself jerking off. Okay. Right. And then he wrote on it, "Who's your daddy?" And then he put it in the VCR in the clinic and left it there. And so I don't know if the clinic knows they have that piece of yeah. video art it's a, it's in there. I mean, actually, I'm going to take you up on it. I wasn't going to ask that next part. Because it's the, sort of from the initial DIY community project, it then sort of, because it turns out to be so laborious and it turns out to be so difficult to actually get pregnant, it then morphs into a more medicalized project. Mm -hmm. Entirely. And so you kind of become part of this entire fertility industry and you're sort of having to participate in all of that. And you kind of, again, you take quite well to it. But, <laughs> but, but, um, but there's also lots of like what you describe as um, sort of structural, uh, structural sort of heteronormativity mm -hmm. that you're coming up against oh, yeah. at all times. And you mentioned one example exactly 
but there was a, there were lots of it, which is kind of like to me is kind of incomprehensible how a, how the fertility industry can be homophobic. I know lots of people have been writing about the uh, researchers and academics, but it's mm -hmm. totally bizarre, isn't it? I was really shocked because I don't have a lot of straight friends because I'm gay, yeah. and so I didn't know that there was this larger you know these larger fertility issues happening you know for all people I guess right and so I just thought oh like a fertility clinic sperm banks all these things these are things that queer people use right and so when I went in I was just really shocked that they I didn't I was never treated in a poor way by anybody everyone was always very cool there were queer people who worked there um, but the system the, the computer systems the paperwork the protocol was so queer phobic it was just always really awful like the minute I decided to that me and my ex-partner we would use their sperm, their their sperm, their egg because they're like 10 years younger than me. I suddenly became the surrogate, and they were the donor, and it was like this really weird, alienating way to be referred to by the clinic. And I had to go for a psych evaluation as a surrogate to make sure, mm -hmm. which like it, the the whole thing was just so irritating, yeah. right? It was really, really irritating. And yeah. you kind of you encountered supportive individuals, but they were caught up in the same normative structures yeah. and, and, and conventions mm -hmm. as you were in a way. Yeah. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's an incredible read, actually, if you guys want to. It, it also reminded me of lots of, of, of just um, of being a part of a medical context as a queer. Yeah. It can happen to you in any medical context. You're completely normalized, and it, it, it often doesn't work with, with yeah. for queer people, does it? The assumptions you encounter and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, just off the top of my head, there was one scenario where you, um, which uh, which made me laugh because it happened to me several times where your partner was referred to as your son. <laughs> this happened to me a lot with my Are you serious? female partner. Yeah, completely. But this happened to to. It happened to me twice yeah. during this time period. Not um, not at the clinic, thank goodness, but um, two different times. It was actually when we were on our honeymoon. Um, it's terrible. That, that two different times, somebody asked me if I was my partner's mother, uh, and I was like. There's like a lot of ways to think about that, you know. Yeah, like, offense, any any of them offense. <laughs> I mean, I was just so shocked because mm. I felt like, frankly, I looked younger than them. So I yeah, I was just sure. sort of like really puzzled. I think what happened is, and then also I think that like like my ex is gender queer, and I think gender queer people really present like as male, but as like little boys because they're you know what I mean, or is, like so. as as like teenage boys or so. I don't know. I think it was all of that stuff. And I think that the people who saw us couldn't understand what we were. I think that's what it was, is that they didn't understand the gender, the connection, and they wanted to make it their business yeah. <laughs> instead of just being like, shrug. But you this know? is exactly what happens in my experience as well. Oh so God. the second they, people might not be able to properly identif identify the gender, then all the other markers of subjectivity or whatever go out of the window mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So suddenly you don't know the age anymore. Yes. Suddenly you don't know anything, anything. anymore. But you and seem intimate, like you care about each other. Yeah, you, so you, it's got to be, yeah. Right, so I got to be their mother. So and I was you, like, yes, I am their mother. Yeah. I said yes, because it was so ridiculous. So it's so ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. Yeah. And then the person was like, no, <laughs> you're their mother? And I'm like, well, if you didn't fucking think I was their mother, why, why did you ask me? Say you know what I mean? Yeah, I was like, no, I'm their mother. Like, I was just like. <laughs> But it's the first thing that comes out. Yeah. Is that in a while as they say articulated, yeah. they know it's not right, but they but people can't quite can't yeah. quite sort of get the They're having just know, a corrected. little like the, the wiring. It gets blown. Yeah. <laughs> the, when I like I mean it's you know, as long as you're not in physical danger, it can be fun when yeah. your queerness fritzes out somebody's yeah. oh, wiring, no, exactly. right? I, mean, I guess that's part of the point, but yeah. it's still sometimes it's sometimes fun and sometimes, it's sometimes not fun. fun. If you feel like you're in danger, it's not fun. Yeah, no, but exactly. you know, if it exactly. if it's just like watching somebody over something that's so basic <laughs> to you, and you're just like, what? you're losing your mind right now. Like, you get it together. Yeah, totally, totally. One person was a 16-year-old boy, so we'll let him a little yeah, off. Yeah, okay, the fair, other fair. was like an adult yeah. woman, you know. Yeah, so. no, totally. I, I'm telling you, it's happened to me more than twice. Oh I can't guarantee you. It's just funny thing. Yeah. So I wanted to ask um, about the writing as well. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a little bit in the back, but people haven't heard it. So um, <laughs> it's because it, it really, really feels like you. It was written as it as it happened. It's to me, it's kind of like interesting how a piece of writing can be so coherent and so consistent and sort of present itself as a as a whole that um, speaks to a past that no longer exists in the same way. Mm -hmm. 
but you really managed to um, put yourself, how did you do it? So you said to me that it's, it wasn't actually written with a long period of hindsight. It, much of it was written um, you know, in real time yeah. because I was blogging a little bit. Like once I'd gotten about a month into um, the process, I realized like, oh wow, I'm really going into places and having interactions and doing things I've never done before. And as a writer, especially someone who, who writes about my own life, like of course, it's very, you know, I just, it started writing itself in my head. And so I, um, I didn't want to lose it. I asked if somebody, I asked exojane.com if they would let me just do a little column just to have a place to put it so I knew I'd stay on it. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't exactly in real time, but it was during the era yeah. that a lot of it was written. Mm -hmm. um, it's not available online anymore, but I had it, most of it on my computer. Yeah. So I went back and worked through a lot of that stuff. Um, and I really was grateful for like the minutia, like a lot of stuff I wouldn't remember. Um, mm -hmm. the, the kind of urgency, not urgency, but yeah, that sort of like as it's happening vibe yeah. I really liked. I wanted to keep that, but also yeah. make it, polish it up a little bit so it wasn't just like a blog, you know, because blogs, those blogs, I was kind of barfing them onto the internet and then just like leaving. So I had to clean them up. My, the person who I'm in the relationship with in the book, I'm not with, I'm not in a relationship with them anymore. And in fact, while I was editing this and putting it together was the the messy heart of our divorce. And so I really didn't like them very much and only started liking them again if I even do like two weeks ago. I'm just like, I don't even, I wouldn't even say that I like them. I would just say that I feel bad for them. And so I don't hate them, you know? Um, so it was really hard to see like all of this effusive fairy tale, like as I just gave myself permission to really run with the like love story of it and that you just, you know, that was a lot of different feelings. Um, and I didn't want, I wanted to keep some of it in there, of course, because it's part of the story. I'm not trying to like rewrite my own history. And you know, and I can I can recognize that it's cute to have a love story in there, yeah, right? Yeah. But sometimes I just went so overboard. You know what I mean? I was just like, you don't deserve that. So I, I just got rid of some of the effusiveness. Um, that yeah. But it really really works. Like I said I said to you earlier, I think the love story is really sweet in it and really convincing. And I was super impressed that you had that love that you sort of retained the the feeling that you had then, mm -hmm. even though it might like you say in the afterward, yeah. even though it might no longer even though you now there might be different feelings, yeah. but you actually stage for the reader the feeling that you had then. I thought that was super impressive. I can't really write like that. I think that's like a, a, a memoirist thing or like yeah. people who, who are people who stay in touch with their past. Maybe, yeah. I think that's... I mean, it was, it was, what was harder for me was to not insert the present into it and be like, yeah. well, that's what I thought then, anyway, yeah. you know, that's and like, do that. that. Yeah, that would be me. Because, <laughs> you know, not, but yeah, I, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to look yeah. so petty. I didn't want you all to know how petty I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it so. is also, people read it, I mean, I read it also for the love story. It's really, it's really sweet. Good, I'm, really, I'm glad. I mean, the person who, the acquiring editor, who didn't end up being my editor through the whole process, but he is a gay man and he really appreciated like a queer love story in it. And, yeah. and so I was like, okay, good. I'm glad, you know, that I, that I kept it. I mean, I, I couldn't have taken it out because that would have almost been too much, almost like a revision, like would I go get pregnant on yeah. my own? You know what I mean? Like yeah, I literally yeah. needed their eggs. So like yeah. they had to stay in the story. <laughs> yeah, no, completely, yeah. and it works. Okay. Um, and then I'm exactly, so I wanted to ask you, is it true that this is like your first, um, Obviously, you guys will know that, um, I mean, Michelle, you've been publishing for like 20 years or something. Mm -hmm, yeah. So um, is it true that this is your first um, book with a mainstream, one of the mainstream publishers? It's not my first. My book, Modern Tarot, was on a, uh, like the, the kind of woo-woo imprint of HarperCollins. And yeah. my book, How to Grow Up, was on an imprint of Penguin. Okay. Um, but this... Um, it's the third one, and it was like the, you know, it was like it, it gained the biggest advance or the biggest amount of like excitement. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, uh, that was crazy. And it's kind of like, um, I wanted to ask you a question about it because it does like, you, I mean, it's obviously a brilliant book, but your other, your previous books were brilliant as well. So Thank it's you. Interesting to see. Would you agree with that, that this one um, gets 
I'm more of a public response, like I, I, I said to you earlier, the E were on TV. I was on TV like in the United States, it's true, yes. Um, so do you I was on CBS this morning. Did you, that's Which incredible. I didn't care about at all. No, except I was like, oh, it's a trip to New York, I get to buy a dress. I was very excited, you know? I want to be on TV. I, I was excited, but also, but, like, I don't know CBS Morning. I don't know CBS Morning, but... But then you do because it's Oprah Winfrey's girlfriend's show, Gail. Her secret lesbian girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. So then I got really excited, but Gail wasn't there when I was there. But the point is, it's like such a, it's a, it's a real marker of how the pub, how a wider, potentially like a wider public responds yeah. to this particular book. So we have your readership. Obviously, you have a really long-term readership, and it's 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 probably huge already. But this. Seems to sort of um, this seems to sort of branch out beyond your long-term readership already. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, what, do you think? Um, do you think it's to do with the subject matter of reproduction? I because mean, I do think a so. Little bit, a little think? bit, because you know, reproduction or having a baby is like the most basic. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, you know, it's like it's it's basic. It's boring. It's conservative. It's straight people do it all the time. You know, it's, it reaches. It's like a course. large. Yeah. yeah. And so, but also, I think that this idea about like waiting till you're older to have a kid and like what does that look like? I think that's actually something that like tons of people who are older. Um, who put off having a kid for all the various reasons are thinking about, yeah. you know, and that because there is this technology that's available yeah. and it's becoming more accessible and that like more, at least in the States, like more and more companies are offering it and their benefits, it's becoming more of an option to people. Um, and then also there's this, this thing where like queerness is becoming more acceptable too, right? So it's also about the moment in yeah, I mean, it, it is and it isn't, right? Because it's like also there's like, you know, books are being banned in the States and horrible laws are being enacted. I mean, it's just, it's like both things are happening at once. Yeah. It's like, it's it's very confusing and strange. But the, you know, to be on a morning show and have one of the, I mean, these, these I think are so the most I mean. conservative kind of boring <laughs> shows, right? They're really speaking to middle America. And, um, and to have like one of the hosts, like, say queer in this really casual way and yeah. it just was wild. But it's incredible. But I think, see, I think these things are important. So obviously there's two different schools of thought. So uh -huh. some people are um, super happy to uh, write for a queer audience only. Mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of like um, of the mind that queer work should actually travel into the mainstream, mm -hmm. sort of should affect as much change as it possibly can. Yeah, I agree. So I'm super, super interested what the kind of <gasps> books are that are, that are sort of maybe giving straight audiences ways into the queerness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not writing for straight audiences, and you never yeah. have in no. your entire life. But, <laughs> but it's still interesting to see how it might happen. And I'm, I was just thinking, because the other huge queer trans book was obviously the Transition Baby, which right. is also about... Right. Which is also about reproduction. It is about reproduction, right? So, so it's I'm about this really that's acceptable. This is sort of the trick. It's like the, the weird Trojan baby. Sort of yeah, <laughs> because it's this true. It's it like the baby desire is so like wholesome yeah. and like you know. But detransition baby is like so dirty no, and perverted, and it's like such an insider look at queer right. culture too. Like. Super insider. That's what I mean. I think yeah. it's really smart to say it is like exactly as the Trojan baby. You sort mm -hmm. of give them, give, give the wider public something, and then it's you. It's a book about a baby. <laughs> 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 so this is super, super interesting. Yeah. But okay, but this is not why. This is not your first. This is not why the larger publisher has picked this up. I mean, too. I don't know. I think there is, you know, they have to think that there's something about the book that can reach a larger audience yeah. to be on a press like this, you know, yeah. for sure, yeah. So whatever it was that struck um, the, the buyer, again, the buyer was a gay man, and so maybe he also had more optimism about like, this is a queer story that can reach, you know, I, you know who knows if it's, I don't know. But the other thing you said is also completely true, there is now suddenly an, um, more of an interest from the, even the larger publishers to pick up the queer stuff and I to think pick so. up the sort of stuff that they know has been marginalized for so long. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, we've put, there's been so much pressure, in a way, on the publishing industry that y your books have been, that some queer books are now published also by. Yeah, by yeah, I mean, I was really excited for it because, you know, it just came, like right at that moment I was getting a divorce and I was like, what will I do with my life, you know? And, and I, I really needed a, the boost of it. But, you know, there's, 
no reason. It's 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 a an ama it's amazing, and then it's really stressful because I'm of course gonna write another book, and now I'm like, gotta write another CBS Morning book now. <laughs> gotta stick, keep it up here. <coughs> when realistically, that's not how I write, right? No. You just have to think, what's the other thing apart from a baby? That <laughs> <laughs> just put a baby in it. No, just just name the book Baby. There's no babies in it, but we'll just call it Baby. No. But as I said, I think this is exactly what should be happening. This is, this is what we want to see. We want to see cool. this kind of thing happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's very little justice in the world of, of art. You know, I mean, most, all, all the books that have, like, affected me the most, like, are books that, don't. I mean, you'd be shocked if you knew like what people make off their books, like no, books sure. that you know that are famous to you, right? And then you, you learn this. I mean, and I am in this world, and I hear what people who I think are superstars make, you know, queer superstars, um, and I'm like, what? Definitely. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Guys, do you want to ask some questions? Now that, I've, now that I'm bringing it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can someone else ask some more optimistic <laughs> questions? Yeah, I think, is there a mic coming for you? Yes, oh my God, you're gonna be amplified. Hi, hello, Hi. thank you so much. Firstly, I just wanna say thank you for writing this book. Um, oh. It's amazing, I thank can't wait you. to get stuck into it. Um, but I just, I wanted to ask actually about your approach to kind of doing this on your own, but as part of the queer community, because as a lesbian who really wants to have a baby but has like chronically um, not ideal relationships romantically, <laughs> um, it's something that I've thought about and something that my mum and I have argued about quite a lot, uh -huh. and um, I would be really interested to hear your take on how you approached it within that kind of community, because for me, I very much see it as like, I would never be alone if I did it on my own, and I just wanted to hear what your thoughts on that Yeah, was. totally. I, uh, I love that you're like, you would never be alone if you had it on your own, because you have this great community. I think I assumed the same, you know, even though... Honestly, most of my queer friends, you know, are the kind of queers that like hate children and are so glad that they, you know what I mean? <laughs> they weren't the ones that are like, let's have babies, you know? Um, but I think I thought the same. And also, you know, at the, at the time I was living in San Francisco, I had, a, I had a big writer's community. I had a big recovery community. I was part of so many communities um, that have an ethos of like mutual care that I just felt like it's going to be okay, you know? I just, I just trusted that because once I decided that it was something I wanted to pursue, to not pursue it would have just felt like I was capitulating to some idea that like, oh, somebody like me can't have a kid, like, because I don't have enough money or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, people have fucking kids all the time mm. under all kinds of circumstances, people with less resources mm. than me, you know? Um, so, so I decided just to go for it, um, for sure. And, you know, I did, I think I did have some, some ideas that were maybe naive or <laughs> as far as about like, that's fine, I'll just strap my baby on my back and just, you know, hitchhike across the world. You know, I, I, there were things that I ended up being quite grateful that I had somebody helping me. But again, like if I didn't have that relationship, who knows what would have risen into that space. Like I don't think I would have been alone, I really don't. Um, I would say, this is, I, there was one point before I really started going for it, when it was kind of floating around, and I was almost joking about it, while I was like stepping up to it more seriously, were my two best friends, they're a couple, they were a couple, and we decided we're like, maybe we should have a baby together. And that just seemed like a really cool idea. Mm -hmm. And I still love that idea, and I'm actually even more in favor of that idea now that I'm a divorced person. Because initially, when, when me and my ex split up, I was totally ripped apart at the idea that I would be 
losing my kid for like half the time because we we're gonna ha do half custody. I was like, what? That's like no. Like they're gonna take my kid away from me for like, you know, half of the week. Like, it was really painful for like a week. And then I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> I have a week to myself. Yeah. I can like smoke. I can like you know have sex. I can see a friend. I can like it was. It's amazing. And then I'm like, why do we, you know, breed in these romantic couples where it just burns out, it burns the romance out of the I mean, not always, obviously, but I think this is fame I think this is a famous problem though, right? Within romantic couples is that everyone knows you're fucking exhausted. It's all on the two of you. It's hard to have the time, energy, money to have sex, to go on dates, all those things. Why not have a baby with like your friends? And then you know what I mean? And then everybody gets to still have their life. I love that idea. I really recommend it. <laughs> Go forth and prosper. <laughs> um, I was wondering if, sort of, once you started the process, whether there's like a sort of, like you talked a little bit about how the fertility clinics and stuff are very sort of heteronormative. And I wondered whether like once you go down, start going down the road of getting pregnant, whether there's a sort of assimilationist pressure particularly around having a kid that sort of, I don't know, if you feel, if you felt like sort of those structures and stuff were trying to force you into a more heteronormative kind of equivalent of a queer setup. Right, no, I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel like the clinic, you know, um, had any investment in how I lived my life per se. Um, my actual doctor was a cis man who I presume was straight. I didn't, my gaydar told me he was straight. and. Um, mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, when he when he learned that I was going to have to have this um, psyche valve because I was using going to use my ex's eggs, like he, without me even saying anything, he tried to waive that, you know. And he was pissed that he couldn't. He was like, you shouldn't have to do that, you know. So, you know, again, on an individual basis, the people were fine. They were great. I never felt, you know, like judged or anything like that. Um, only only supported. But, um, but it was the systems that they had in place. And their blindness to the system was, I think, a part of their straight privilege that they didn't you know, have to think about it. And I think that I know for myself, I was definitely less riled up to like be a freedom fighter in those moments, because I felt super out of my element. I felt really vulnerable. Um, I knew that I was going to have to be working with these people in really weird ways, and I didn't want to necessarily make enemies of, of everyone. I was also exhausted. Like, there were so many things that were working against me, making a big deal about it. Like, I was always like, I'm going to, when this is all over, I'm going to write a letter. But I guess I wrote this book. Yeah. <laughs> I should send them the book. I mean, like, thanks for everything. I got some notes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do think that there's like a, a straight privilege kind of blindness to it, but I don't think that the people there even, yeah. I think they are maybe dealing with a lot of straight people too. I mean, there were definitely some queers. Like we went to an orientation, there were like two lesbian couples there. Out of a lot of couples though, so it was definitely the, shockingly the minority, yeah. Thought it was gonna be a total lesbo jam. Just like, you know, like baby mad lesbians. There's just like nobody there. I know, uh, I'd be like, look, there's a lesbian right there. You know, I was like excited to see like the two, the four queer people that were there. <laughs> Hi, um, you mentioned um, in the reading, when you mentioned epigenetics, the reading was ace, by the way, thank you. Um, you also mentioned, I think you called it radical helpfulness. Is that what it was? Radical help was that the phrase? Radical to, helpfulness? Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more from you about, about that. Oh, I don't know that I said that, but I like oh. that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I like being radically radical helpful with boundaries. Good. It was radical something good. Um, I just, uh, let me see, I, I mean, I can speak to what I was thinking about when I wrote that, you know, which is just that, like, just feeling struck by something that maybe seems so simple as, like, loving and cuddling a baby, you know, is actually quite challenging for a lot of traumatized people, you know, in the world that, you know, aren't able to do that or aren't able to do that with any consistency or, you know, aren't able are able to do that, but you know, also are maybe not unable to stop themselves from being shitty in different ways. So it just felt really 
amazing to feel like, wow, like, you know, this is a very selfish endeavor of mine to bring a baby onto this dying planet, for sure. Um, I don't think I'm doing anyone a favor, not even my child who didn't ask to be born, you know? <laughs> but, um, but it did feel like, oh, wow, like to, to put a loved and cared for person, human, out into the world, like, that's actually kind of a big deal, you know? It shouldn't be. It's ridiculous that it is, you know? But I, and I, I remember being struck by that, too, just like being in a playground when he was like a toddler, and, you know, it was, I don't know, some fucking East Los Angeles playground. It was like super cute, with all these like fucking cute kids named like Tree and Fox, and, you know? And it's like everybody was adorable, and I'm just like, and who knows what's going on in anybody's lives, right? But it, but on the outset, anyway, I, I'm like, oh, these like people are, she's, children are having a good life, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, like, you know, at least I feel like I'm giving my child, I know that I'm giving my child a happy childhood. Like, this is, a, this feels like a big deal, you know? It really, it really did. You know, I know that, you know, my, my parents were very unhappy, a very unhappy couple when I, when I was little, up, you know, up until they it took them forever to get divorced. But, you know, I hear stories about fights that they had, like, right in front of me that my mother will tell me. And I was, like, two or something. I didn't, I don't remember these things happening, but they seem so dramatic, like somebody throwing a dish across the room and it's smashing, and you're just like, wow, how does that affect you, you know? Like, knowing about, like, the ways of, the con of our consciousness and our bodies and somatic things, like, it's just, it's really intense to think about. So it, it did feel like a radically cool thing to do, is to just, like, let a little person be in peace, you know, and mm -hmm. find themselves and support them and love them. Thanks very much. Um, I loved uh, everything about this evening. Thanks so much. Um, uh, my question is a little bit about, like, um, you mentioned recovery and um, uh, the delay. And I'm just thinking a bit about, like, how do you know when you're um, trying to control outcomes versus how do you know when you're kind of inviting in these other forces? Like, um, uh, And then that one part and the other part is, like, does the delay for you, did it have to do with internalized homophobia? And um, I don't know if those, if those two things could be joined together in any way, because like, I think queer people have too much time to deliberate and then enough time to talk themselves. You know, there are so many reasons not to. It's not mm -hmm. helpful to the planet to keep producing children. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know. And part of me is like, is my delay because the universe is telling me it's not a good idea. You know, I'm just wondering if you had to battle with those types of questions in your, uh, when you were deciding, should I keep progressing with medical interventions or should I just be like, enough? Okay, I get, I get your question. Um, so the delay, so it seems like the first part of your question was like, was like internalized homophobia and, and or my alcoholism part of the delay in what took me so long to even think about it. Oh right, I get. Uh, yeah. So right, when do you when do you know yeah. it's just not yeah. your? Um, that's a really great question, and I really thought about that a lot. Um, you know, at first, my idea was that I was just going to try for. I was never going to do artificial reproductive technology. I didn't feel confident that I could afford it. You know, um, I mean. Even if in that moment I had the money, you know, the, when you make money as a writer, it's so weird. It's not like you make a bunch of money and then you keep making a bunch of money. It's like you make a bunch, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to make a bunch of money and I was like, huzzah, now I have to hold on to it for the rest of my life because nothing will ever come again, you know. So I didn't feel confident to spend a bunch of money. And it also, you know, I had, I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily think I had judgment about it, but I think I did a little bit because there was a little bit of like, well, you know, if you can't have a baby, just fucking go live. You know, because I don't believe like having a kid is you know, the purpose to anyone's life. You know, personally, like, I never felt like that about kids. Even when I decided to try to have one, I was like, my life will still be really awesome if I don't have a kid. But what happened was the more I got into it, the more I got into it, you know? And it's like the fantasy just sort of like, and then everyone who's helping you um, is sort of inadvertently perhaps feeding that fantasy, right? Where you can't help be like, oh God, you're gonna be such a great aunt, oh, you know? And they're like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna teach him how to skateboard. And you're like, well now I have to have a baby so Tara can teach him how to skateboard, you know? And so it just takes on a life of its own. Um, so, I, and then that um, paired with suddenly, you know, finding this partner and everything feeling so like, wow, and they had a really good job, which was very 
unusual in my dating history and wanted to do it. And it was just like, it all just sort of was happening. So I just sort of decided to follow it. Um, and, you know, my, my ex, we had, we had started with, how many eggs did we have? We had, you know, it's this whole thing. Like they, they had to get on all these meds to overproduce eggs. And then the eggs were taken from their body and fertilized. And then you see, you know, what they're looking like five days in. And you take the best one and you put the rest in the freezer. And so a lot of them don't make it. Um, so like the first, my first embryo transfer, it, nothing happened. The second one, I miscarried. And then the third one, they put two embryos in, but only one came out. Where's the other one? <laughs> I think my son ate it. And like, you ate your twin. Um, and so after that, there was one more in the freezer after that, after those two. And I remember the doctor being like, you know, and if that doesn't work, we'll just go back to the drawing board. You know, we'll get some more eggs. And I'm like, what do you think? We're going to do this forever? Like, you know, it's so hard mm. on your body. I mean, like, for my ex's body to be overproducing eggs and the meds that they had to be on, which is, they're gross, right? And then for me, what I was like pumping my body full of so many weird different things, like, you know, estrogen and progesterone, obviously, but like Viagra and mm. like, like Lupron, which is really creepy. And then this other men menopause to like simulate menopause. I know it's a really, it's a really weird, it's not good for your body. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to chase this dream off a cliff, you know? So I, I, I had pretty much figured out if we would work through those eggs, we did it, right? We tried, we tried it. And then if, if that wasn't the case, if it didn't happen, we'd regroup and see if, did we want to pursue adoption, which is its own thing, which is not easy, you know, or, or a gentle way to bring a child into your life either. Um, but yeah, that's how I figured out we would just do it after that. And I think we really would have stopped after that because it was, it was hard, you know. But I do know people who keep going. I heard, and, and then they get a kid. You know, they do get a kid, and they're so grateful that they stuck with it. But it's like, I don't know that I could stick with it for that long. But it is actually true. It's interesting in the book that the determination actually grows. So from like an idea of, all right, let's maybe sort of give it a shot. And the, the, once you start and in, engaging with the process, yeah. then actually the, the determination gets stronger and stronger. And I think maybe this could it be that this is partly because it be, was such a social project. So it almost was you, you made this decision like almost on your own, and then it so many it involved this entire infrastructure. It snowballed, yeah. This entire infrastructure and the entire group of friends and mm -hmm. and family. Yeah. And, and this is sort of in, sometimes this is how agency as well works. It, it leaves your own body, and yeah. it becomes like this huge, huge distributed thing yeah. that ended, ends then in a baby. Yeah. So yeah, I think. For sure, for sure. It took on a life of its own. But I would have killed Literally. it if I had. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you had your hand up. Do you think that it was important that it was like physically in you and that, because we were thinking a bit about this idea of like a queer village of, like, is that realistic? Because I kind of want to be a floating parent or I'm trying to be a floating parent, but I still am like, oh, I'd be a mum, but for all of my friends' kids a bit. But that is stupid, right? It's not actually going to happen because people are proprietary about it. It is like their kids. Do you think that there needs to be a primary, like, would you not be jealous if you had a bunch of people sort of equally sharing your baby? Could you have done it without knocking yourself up? Could you still be a mum? Without knocking yourself up. <laughs> um, I really wanted to experience being pregnant. Like that was just a, a physical experience I really wanted. Mm. So it was it was important for me in that way. But um, I didn't think that it necessarily meant that I was like more of a parent, you know, than than my co-parent or anything like that. Um, you know, I think that. I don't know. I think that if you're like you, you get in on the ground floor with someone and you're all kind of making this plan together, I think you can hash all of those things out, right? Um, I do. My experience, and this is clearly not every person who's been pregnant's experience at all, but my experience um, is that I feel so hormonally, physically changed and chemically changed from having given birth, and my connection to my kid feels so hormonally like physically primal and I do think that it has something to do with having given birth like I think I, I 
obviously I'd be deeply connected to the, the kid no matter what. But, you know, I don't necessarily think it's great that I feel like that. I don't necessarily think it's a benefit to me or the kid because it's like, it does, I, I now understand like weird helicopter parents and, and parents that are so like, like I understand why I'm 51 years old and every time I leave my house, my mother's like, be careful, where are you going? What are you gonna do? You know, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm fine. Like I travel the world alone, leave me alone. But now, I would be the same way. I'd be like, oh my God, you going out in the street? Where? Where you going? You know, it's like there's this, I don't know. It feels like I've been changed chemically, but and, and it's really so much about this person being in the world now. But I think you can be a floating parent. I think that there's many times I would have loved to, you know, call a floating parent to float on over and take the baby, you know? And no, I mean, you can't be jealous of your child's relationships and closeness with other people. I mean, you know, I mean, jealousy is real. People don't ask for it. It can be really powerful. It's a powerful emotion. But like, I just think in general, it's good to figure out how to handle those emotions, you know, mm -hmm. because you just want more love for your, you know, if, you, if there's more people loving your child, that's just good for your child, right? More, a, a greater sense of security, more people who love them, more people who bring different aspects out of them, can teach them different things, you know, who they feel comfortable going to for something. Maybe they won't feel comfortable going to you. They'd go to you, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's like a cool thing. It's like, it's sort of like polyamory in a way, like the kind of processing and figuring out like the roles and the boundaries and stuff, right? But I think you have to allow for the, the blossoming of love and that can't be controlled. That should never be controlled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for writing this book, which is fantastic. And can I put in a plug for your next book to be about queer parenting as the mother of a three-year-old? I would love to read your views <laughs> oh on that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I had two quick questions. One was um, the thinking around changing the names in the book because mm -hmm. it's a memoir. I was just curious as to why you did that um, and sort of what it allowed you to do that maybe keeping the names wouldn't have allowed you to do. Um, and the second question was, um, what's the most surprising feedback you've received from audiences and readers to the book? Um, those are great questions. <laughs> um, I'm just used to changing names. Um, I started changing names right when I very first started writing little vignettes, never thinking they'd be published, really only writing them to be read at open mics. But I was writing about all my friends. and. We were part of this larger queer scene, and it felt just like weirdly sceny and name droppy to be like, oh, and then Debbie came over, and so did Jackie, and but you guys didn't, you know what I mean? So it just felt kind of weird. So I just wanted to change names, and I wanted, I also wanted it to have like a vibe of like a novel, like I wanted to elevate it in a way, and it felt like that helped me, helped me to get into that space, you know. Um, I know, like I changed my ex's name, but not my child's name, which is like so like. I didn't know that I didn't change my kid's name, which I don't know, I'm like that. It's such a weird um, little task to, to try to think about how you're going to change people's names. So I don't even know how I would have thought about changing my own kid's name. I had wanted to name him Linus. Maybe I would have given him the name that I wish I gave him. <laughs> I like his name, but you know. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that, that's, that's why. I, when I'm writing, I like to think about it. I mean, it's like I'd almost change my own name if I could. I'd like to just really get detached from it. And look at it like a movie a little bit, and it and it helps, and it helps people be a little less feel a little less vulnerable, I think, and I and I'm glad for that. I never, you know, I know people feel vulnerable after showing up in a book. Um, it's inevitable. I've accepted it, but I don't like it. You know, I'm not trying to make anybody feel vulnerable, so so I like that. And then wait, what was your oh the most unusual question, sort of? Well, the most surprising feedback you've had. Surprising feedback. Hmm. Gosh, I don't know. Somebody asked me if I did stand-up comedy, <laughs> which is <not> nice. <laughs> um, I don't know. I really, I've liked all the conversations. Not, nothing's necessarily been surprising, but they've all just been a little, a little bit different. Like similar, but like very different. Um, it's been really sweet to hear from people who are. Oh, you know, somebody asked me where was I? I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and as a woman who's in the midst of trying to do this, and she's struggling a little, you know and was like, you know, how do you think, what, what do you think you would have done if it hadn't worked out and you hadn't, got, you hadn't gotten pregnant? I'm, I'm like, I guess it would have been a different book, you know, like for sure, but I still think I would have written the book, you know, um, and it just would have had a different oomph to it, you know, and it probably would have ended up being a book that was somehow affirming that like your life is worth living even if you don't have a kid, which is something I believe very deeply. I'm just not embodying it in this lifetime anymore, right? But so yeah, 
that was that was interesting to think about. Yeah. Oh, we got one. Do we have a, a burning desire? Cheeky one. Hang on. <laughs> for the cheeky mic. I was wondering because of your lovely talking about uh, other people loving your children, because I'm a nanny and I, I love working as a nanny and loving other people's children very much. And it's made me always want to be part of like a to have children myself, to be part of like a parenting polycule, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yes, do you have, what's your childcare situation like? That's my question to you. What's <laughs> <laughs> your childcare situation like? Um, well, for the first like five years of my kid's life, me and my ex were together. Um, and I was futilely attempting to like make a living in Hollywood. I had this big plan, I was gonna like write for TV, but as it turns out, really hard to get into make it in Hollywood. Um, you maybe have heard that, and it's true. <laughs> and, but my, my ex was like the primary caregiver, and we were super like privileged because my ex had worked for like Yelp and was like one of the first employees for Yelp. Um, and so we had money, you know, and so we were able to do that and to have them stay at home and to have me be attempting to do something. I mean, I was still making money. I was still hustling, but you know, I wasn't. I wasn't making that much money. Um, we had we had a couple babysitters, and then once he got old enough to terrorize them, they stopped agreeing to work with us. Um, and now, you know, he's he's seven. He'll be eight. Um, me and my ex are split up, so he spends time at both houses. And in general, um, because I don't, I just try to not schedule things for when. I have him because I don't have him constantly. So it's just, a, it's really different, you know, than before when I was like, you know, there was a moment where I had to finish a book when he was really young and, um, and we, we were having my ex's sister come who also worked as a nanny and would come and we had an arrangement with her that she would spend time with him for a few hours while I, while I worked and stuff. And this is when my ex was still at their job. Um, I just kind of like figure it out. Um, you know, I I am I have a husband who's a huge huge part of of my kid's life. Like he's you know definitely our kid now. Like we're a family, and so I do have like the help of a second parent in my home. My mom moved in with us during COVID. She's not like super mobile, but she's able to like be at home with him if like we have to run out or something like that. So yeah, but nannies are so great. You guys are so great. And I love, Addie did really have a, um, a babysitter that he loved for a moment, and then COVID happened, and the cheeky nanny question. <laughs> should we wrap up? Yeah, I guess, I guess that we should wrap up, yeah. Um, well, only wrap up this bit. You'll stay yes, in Yes, I'm going to stay. Right? I'm going to sign books. <laughs> um, so. Thank you so much. I love the generosity that you bring to all of these things. Um, it's amazing listening to you talk. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Isabel. Thanks for Isabel thank you. for so being good to here. See you thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.